Hello and welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experiences of personal devices and services in the home, in the car, or on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global consulting and research firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I'm Diana Franganillo, and I'm joined today by Chris Reiner. Hello. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right today. How are you? Very well, thank you. Today, for the very first time in UX Soup, we are going to talk about motion sickness and why preventing it is of utmost importance in transportation and simulation environments. When we travel as passengers, either in cars, trains, or planes, we can get motion sick. OEMs are investing a significant amount of resources to bring us the automated vehicle, which comes to free up driver's time and enable other experiences in the vehicle, such as working, socializing, and relaxing. It is obvious that these enabled experiences cannot be fulfilled and enjoyed if the driver now passenger becomes motion sick. So we want to understand what research has been done on reducing motion sickness in self-driving cars, what does this mean when we are talking about partially self-driven vehicles? And what countermeasures will we likely to see? To talk about this, we have here today with us Dr. Joseph Smith. Joe is a research fellow at Warwick Manufacturing Group at the University of Warwick, working within the field of human factors for connected and automated vehicles. His current research focuses on human factors in automation and HMI, but he has a particular interest in motion sickness management for VR, flight and driving simulation environments, and self-driving vehicles. Joe, welcome to UX Soup. Thanks for being here with us today. Hi, Diana. Hi, Chris. Very nice to be here. Joe, could you explain to us why do people get motion sick? Yeah, of course. It's a really interesting one. We have essentially three methods within our body of detecting motion. You know, we've got our eyes, which everyone's very familiar with. You can see motion uh, within our inner ear. We have what's called the vestibular system. And this is a series of balance organs uh, which are responsible for understanding motion. And we also have our somatosensory system within our brain, which helps us understand pressure on limbs and location of limbs. Now, motion sickness comes about most often when there's a mismatch between one or more of these senses. Say, for example, you're sitting in a car as a passenger and you're reading a book. Well, your entire visual visual environment, uh, everything your eyes are seeing is telling you that you're static, although your inner ear is still picking up emotions as you're traveling around the road. And therefore, we create a conflict in senses uh, known as sensory conflict theory, and that is what causes motion sickness. Joe, I am curious about, is everyone equally prone to motion sickness? No, there's some very stark contrast between populations as to who's more susceptible than others. The most notable one is between males and females. On average, we find that females are around about twice as susceptible to motion sickness as males. And that's very much dependent on um, sex hormones, estrogens and testosterones, for example. There's also good evidence to, to show you how motion sickness affects different uh, ethnicities in, in different manners. The precise cause and mechanisms of these aren't quite as well known. It's perhaps more to do with different exposures and habituation patterns. And then there's also age. Age is another one. We understand that children uh, at young age don't really suffer from motion sickness. Uh, it kind of peaks towards young childhood around seven, seven to ten uh, and declines into adulthood. As people get older, however, we notice that motion sickness does increase, um, which is another curious case. So uh, motion sickness, of course, has been around for ever and we're all pretty familiar with it in one way or the other but there's been a lot more research been going on with motion sickness since the development of self-driving vehicles 
why do you think that that has happened that way? Is there some some factor of, of driving the vehicle that helps with motion sickness that makes people less sick? And now we're taking that away and now we're going to have drivers more prone to it. Is that part of the issue? Yeah, you mentioned a couple of really interesting things. Uh, motion sickness always has been about. We know around two thirds of the population have suffered from motion sickness in vehicles. Uh, according to the US National Library of Medicine, around one third of the population are known to be highly susceptible to motion sickness. But in day-to-day -day lives, people don't tend to get motion sick. And the reason why is, is people understand they get motion sick and they actively avoid tasks that make them motion sick. So if I knew myself that I suffered from motion sickness, I would probably be more likely to be a driver in a car than I would be a passenger. And when I am a passenger, I wouldn't be likely to read books or work on my laptop. Uh, instead, I'll just be looking at the road ahead. One of the interesting things with uh, self-driving vehicles is, and, and one of the most exciting things for the consumer, is the freedom to become a passenger and the freedom to engage in these non-driving related activities. If you ask 100 people what they want to do in a self-driving vehicle, you'll hear things like, play on my phone, I want to read a book, I want to watch films, I want to work and reduce my office hours by work as my car drives me to work. And that's where the increase of motion sickness is going to come about. There is no longer this freedom to regain control of the vehicle. There's no incentive to keep your eyes on the road. Perhaps even designs won't allow you to keep your eyes on the road. And people will be expected to be doing these non-driving related tasks, many, if not all of which, are likely to induce motion sickness. Joe, besides of uh, having a happy customer willing to pay a high price tag for an automated vehicle to be able to relax, to be entertained and so on, could you explain to us why motion sickness is, is as well very important? Sure. Yeah, there's a few things. Um, of course, as you point out, all these manufacturers uh, in recent years have been putting out really exciting looking concepts trying to show what the future of transportation may look like. If you want to achieve those goals, making your vehicle look like a living room and stuff, we well, need to combat this motion sickness. If we're thinking about slightly lower levels of autonomy, perhaps level three, um, partially or level four, conditionally automated vehicles, well, in level three, there's an expectation that a driver must regain control at a certain time. And a level four vehicle, there's an option that the vehicle can regain control. If you imagine a, a scenario where someone is traveling along in their partially or conditionally automated mode, reading a book as they're driving down the road, it's, it's likely that motion sickness could be a factor for that person. And when asked to regain control of the vehicle, or perhaps they desire to take control of the vehicle because they're motion sick, we cannot assure that the safety of their driving performance is maintained due to the onset of motion sickness. We've conducted some primary research in, in driving simulators. Research has echoed across other domains, such as in the Navy, for example. It's quite clearly demonstrated that motion sickness has quite a significant adverse effect on human performances, and that's inclusive of reaction time and visual ability and, and attention focusing cognitive skills and, and short-term memory processing, and even physical engagement with controls. So we need to make sure that we are addressing the issue of motion sickness so that in these partially and conditionally automated vehicles, we can ensure safe handover procedures back to the uh, manual driving task. So how much in those cases does motion sickness impact response time? Are there numbers that you can give to that? Like if typically in a L3 or L4 vehicle, there's supposed to be like 30 seconds warning that they're supposed to give. Like how long does that motion sickness last? How long does it take them to be able to overcome that, to be able to drive safely? Or do they? Do they is the, is the big question. The time taken to recover from significant motion sickness is really kind of starts at around 30 minutes onwards. When we do these driving simulator studies and on-road studies, commonly testing to induce motion sickness. So it's, it's fair to assume we have quite a high number of people who do get motion sick. And in those cases, they, they just have to stop the study. They cannot continue. It, it doesn't matter if you give them five minutes, 10 minutes to regain control of something. Uh, they, they don't want to. They'll, they'll feel physically unwell. 
So in these quite extreme cases of self-driving vehicles, certainly these 10 second handover periods won't be enough. But that's quite on the drastic end. If we if we think more about, I guess, more practical applications, what is a, a safe reaction time that a driver should be expected to maintain whilst, at, whilst driving a vehicle? We know, for example, if you've been drink driving uh, or consuming alcohol before you've driven, your reaction time is deteriorated. We also know, I'm not sure to the same extent, um, but we also do know that this is the, that reaction time is affected by motion sickness. So would you allow someone to drive a vehicle? They're not 100% uh, safe and accurate. Fatigue is another one that can impair your ability to drive <clears throat> or to do whatever task as well, almost to the extent of having same side effects as, as drink driving. This brings an interesting question. Is there any way that we can use to measure motion sickness? Right now, for consumer practical applications, no. In the research environment, we have multiple subjective scales, whether it be the MSAQ, the Motion Sickness Assessment Questionnaire, various simulator-based questionnaires like the SSQ, Simulator Sickness Questionnaire, and other things like the Misery Scale, uh, for example. And they're really good at giving a, a good subjective understanding of how someone is feeling or how someone was feeling during a specific task. Ideally, we would like to get to the stage where we can measure these things objectively using various psychophysiological measures. If I can take a quick step back to the causes of motion sickness, it helps understand the physiology. Um, I mentioned at the beginning, we have this thing called sensory conflict theory, which is responsible for motion sickness. And the reason why that induces motion sickness is because of what's known as the toxic hypothesis or evolutionary hypothesis. And this explains that when your body mention, notices that there's a mismatch between one or more of your senses, it assumes that you must have ingested a poison or a toxin. And it's that poison which is responsible for the mismatch in senses. And that's why you become motion sick. So what happens when your body thinks it's being poisoned? Well, you start to sweat, you push toxins out through your skin, you start to burp to alleviate gases, and eventually you empty the contents of your stomach, hopefully into a sick bag. Theoretically, there are a lot of physiological phenomena which are associated with motion sickness. Thermoregulation, to do with core body temperature and your skin temperature. Increased sweat rate, which is measured quite nicely through electrodermal activity, or EDA, using wearables. Parlour, the change in, in skin colour in your face. Vomiting, of course. And maybe even some more nuanced things to do with heart rate and variability within heart rates. The problem is, at least from what we've found and, and other literature supports so far, is that these physiological measures are more impacted by the psychological states of alarm and of stress than they are of motion sickness. So when we're taking these measurements, when, when people realise they become motion sick, an alarm or stress response kicks in. And that has a greater impact on their physiology than does the motion sickness, sickness itself. So it's quite hard to differentiate between the two currently. So we have, uh, with L3... L4, and for those that, sorry, are not as familiar with self-driving vehicles, those are ones that can handle a self-drive for part of the route where the driver doesn't have to pay attention, but at some point the driver has to take back control. With the implementation of L3 and L4, there are going to be cameras looking at the driver that can detect how much the eye is open, may be able to detect other head movements, or are, are there things that a camera could detect that would be signs of motion sickness that might be assigned to the self-driving vehicle to either change the way it's driving or ask the driver if they're okay or do some other type of measure? Yeah, certainly. Lots of manufacturers, as I understand, are looking into various driver state monitoring um, methods. Camera-based technology is probably going to be the one the most useful because not only are we interested in measuring one's physiology, we're interested in understanding what the driver is doing at that present time. So it's going to be a sort of multimodal method needed to understand motion sickness state. 
probably based on the passenger's history of motion sickness, what task they're currently doing, i.e. Do they, are they doing a heads down, eyes off road task? Are there changes in, in their baseline physiology? And a few things. The challenge of a lot of these DSM technologies or driver state monitoring technologies is very similar to the motion sickness issue as it is to the safety issue. And that is where are these sensors going to be? If people are in cars, people tend to wear sunglasses, which completely removes the ability to, to measure eye tracking unless you have very specific sunglasses. People are assumed to be engaging in non-driving related tasks. That could be reading a newspaper. It could be looking at a laptop, which many of which would block the wherever the sensors are located or put the face of the, the driver kind of out of sight of, or view of these DSM systems. So, yeah, there's quite a few challenges to overcome in order to measure physiologically an objective motion sickness state. So we know that some OEMs are already changing the way they design vehicles to be better at preventing motion sickness for passengers. Like, for example, they might be placing the displays higher than before on top of the air vents to facilitate the view of the outside world with a peripheral view. What other techniques are manufacturers using or thinking of using to prevent motion sickness? Pretty good question. And you've covered some of the really important points, which is good. As you said, moving displays and, and points of information to the line of sight of out of the vehicle is going to be a key one. Uh, ensuring we minimise the conflict between your visual sense and your vestibular sense is going to be important. As, as well as that comes kind of like more considerations for the physical design of vehicle. With a self-driving vehicle, do you necessarily need as many windows to be able to observe the outside world from a usable perspective, kind of practically and safety, safely? Uh, no, probably not. But for examples of motion sickness, yes, certainly. We need to be able to see where we're going and understand what the future motion path looks like. And we need to design vehicles in such a way that allows us to gain peripheral information about our motion environment. So we see manufacturers, I hope, kind of moving away from this concept of the vehicle is a living room with no windows and all the windows are covered in screens and everything is a workstation and more towards kind of more kind of user-centered design considering motion sickness. A few concepts have kind of come up around using rearward facing seating. It's pretty much unanimously understood that rearward facing seating is quite a bad idea considering motion comfort so those things are certainly should certainly be avoided we see quite a few innovations from kind of suppliers to automotive companies such as like suspension design companies who are looking at uh, methods of minimizing low frequency vibrations which are known to be nausea inducing uh, for vehicles so i think that's got some good prospects in the future there are also some other things um, perhaps a little bit more comically to do with wearable devices some companies developing eyeglasses, some of the, some of which are filled with fluid to give you an indication of visual, of, of visual motion in your peripheral vision, and others using lights to shine lights around the periphery of your eyes to give you information about the motion you're experiencing. The utility of these, I guess, depends very heavily on the marketing criteria. Do people want to wear these fluid-filled glasses whilst driving in an automated vehicle? Um, I'm not 100% sure of the practicality of that. No. There's been some interesting research into bone conducting vibration, these kind of headsets you can wear, which are supposed to mask the communications between your vestibular system and brain. The research that's come out after this kind of exciting start is slightly lackluster, unfortunately. They don't seem to have that greater utility, which is a bit of a shame. So preventing it certainly is a key, but ultimately it's going to happen. Are there things <laughs> in development to adjust the driving behavior of the vehicle so for instance if i'm driving somebody and they're in the back seat and they don't do very well in the back seat once they let me know i'm changing how i drive i'm not making hard stops i'm being very gentle on turns are there those kinds of implementations happening as well yes yeah, certainly we're seeing lots of research pop up in this area some really promising looking results 
most of which this is kind of early days. Um, we're looking at a, a small collection of individual turns, uh, so maybe a cumulative three or four different bends in a road, or looking purely at the lane positioning within one bend. The results from these kind of initial studies look great, very promising. I expect that this is going to continue to consider overall routes. So whether it be a 30 minute drive or a one hour drive, consider the entirety of the route overall. It seems very likely that in the future, well, well, today you can go on your sat nav and you can specify, I want the quickest journey time or the most economical driving time or the shortest uh, distance driving time. It's possible in the future we may have the least nausea inducing driving time as well. I guess that the marketing name of that one should be <laughs> something that is slightly different as well, like well-being or productivity optimum path or something yeah, like so, that. Somebody will yeah. get paid a lot of money to come up with a good name for that. <laughs> well, I, I heard that you can get motion sick if you kind of like start thinking about it. So I guess that if if you don't name it, it's, it's less likely to happen as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. If you can convince someone strongly enough that they won't get motion sick, then they won't get motion sick. It's a really strong psychological phenomenon going on here. You can study this by giving someone very, very intense, highly complicated work-based tasks. And they've done this on boats. And, and they found that if someone is really actively engaged in a work-based task, they don't get motion sick, they don't realise it. And we can apply similar mechanisms to vehicles. Say, for example, one of the physiological mechanisms behind motion sickness, as I mentioned, is sweating or increased sweat rate. If we can notice someone's becoming unwell and provide them airflow to help them alleviate the sweating and discomfort and thermoregulation, they may not even realise that they're becoming motion sick before that stress and alarm response kicks in, which would be quite good. Likewise, as you say, change the driving route or move the seat slightly so there's an upright position or, or perhaps suggest that they stop playing on their phone and look out the window. Back when I was doing simulator research, we always had a fridge full of ginger ale and a box of ginger cookies nearby. We could see those in the back seats of ride-hailing vehicles or in self-driving cars. Or is that an old wives' tale? It's a bit of both. Ginger is an interesting one. As I said, when motion sickness onset happens, you hit the sensory conflict. This results in physiological symptoms, and the physiological symptoms relate result in psychological symptoms. Now, ginger is a really good agent for settling the stomach. It stops your stomach churning and, and grumbling. And when your body's preparing to vomit, it, that's the first thing it does. It starts gurgling the stomach. So ginger kind of alleviates those symptoms. So people don't really realize that they're becoming motion sick and therefore they don't become motion sick. So ginger is not necessarily a cure for motion sickness, but it certainly alleviates the symptoms, which overall reduces someone's stress and, and uh, discomfort. So you've done probably more research in this space than anybody else. What do you think is the biggest countermeasure that OEM should implement in order to prevent and or alleviate motion sickness? I'm going to need a minute on that one. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can point to one individual technology, but what I think is most important is considering the use case of a self-driving vehicle as a complete package. And that includes not only the physical form of the vehicle, um, but how the vehicle is going to be used and ensuring that the use cases that your users are going to put themselves in are comfortable considering their motion comfort. So if you're putting a display in a vehicle for a self-driving feature, bring it up to the aligner side of the vehicle. If you want to put multiple seats in, put them forward facing. Understand what the customer wants to do in, in their vehicle. Uh, read books, watch films, provide them with the interface technology that allows them to do that in such a way that they won't become motion sick. I'll put you on the spot here. So it's going to be difficult to completely alleviate motion sickness. 
but we're going to have these vehicles that are going to require the driver to take back control with a large proportion that might be, like you said, not in the optimal space to do it. Is this something from a safety perspective that we really should be doing? Yeah, that's a very, very good question and a very important one. I certainly think so. I think it's perhaps a little bit too pessimistic to say that we will never get rid of motion sickness. If you want to get rid of motion sickness, you'll just have to sit in the car, look directly outside of the front windscreen and watch the line of travel of the car at all times. You could argue, well, you might as well drive the car at that point, and I would be inclined to agree. For some people, it will be quite a boring experience driving in a self-driving vehicle, uh, for some people more than others. And certainly, if motion sickness does come about for people and they are being asked to regain control, we, we know pretty empirically that it does affect human performance in a negative way. So something, I believe, does have to be done. In level three vehicles at the moment and looking to level four, we are seeing currently requirements, legislation in the UK being formed, um, and also similar work going on in the US and Canada, looking to understand the safety implications for vehicle handover with regards to driver attentiveness and attention shifting. I think that should probably be expanded to consider motion sickness as well on the same note. Yeah, absolutely. If it has that kind of impact on driving and takeover, I think it absolutely needs to be accommodated in those in legislation. If you went to a theme park and just observed people getting off theme park rides feeling really queasy, imagine asking them to regain control of a vehicle at 70 miles an hour within 10 seconds. Well, that's very interesting, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Very enlightening. Thank you very much for having me. It's been good. If you would like to chat more about self-driving cars, the automotive user experience, or to send us any questions you might have, you can email us at uxsoup, all one word, at strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, ux-soup.com, has links to our recent research on self-driving. There you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UXSoup is a sponsor, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights in mobile, automotive, and a smart home by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.